Support for the show comes from Atlassian. With a new story about AI coming out seemingly every day, it can be hard to know what it all means for you and your job. Atlassian thinks there's a lot to be excited about in the AI-powered future. Even right now, Atlassian's AI-powered software can help you boost productivity by eliminating menial tasks, generating insights, and helping you find information about projects, policies, and processes. No matter if you're a team of two or two million, or if you're around the corner or on another continent, Atlassian software keeps everyone connected and moving together as one towards shared goals. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Oh, God. Let's just get it over with. Let's just get it over with. (laughs) All right, I shall. I just want to say, got the glasses I got at the concert. I got my my bracelets. I'm very excited to get this prediction 100% right. Taylor Swift has been named Times Person of the Year for her singular Influence, according to Tom. I'm in hell. <laughs> we gotcha. I win. I win it all. Swiss Era's tour is projected to generate over $5 billion in consumer spending in the U.S. alone, and she's headed abroad now. Scott, we talked about this in our not-yet-aired predictions episode, and it already came true. Shall we listen? Yes, Les, please, please. Yes, please. Let's, and then we'll sing and hold hands and sing Taylor Swift songs and braid our hair. It's going to be Taylor Swift. Hello. Taylor Swift? It's completely is going to be Times Person of the Year. Okay, that's it. Put a dollar in the Taylor Swift jar. Every time you mention Taylor Swift, a dollar goes in the jar. No, that's oh, who's Jesus going to be Christ. Person of the Year. Just when it happens, can you apologize to me? Because that's what's going to... It's not going to be Sam Altman. Oh, come on. You why? really think it's going to be Taylor Swift? I absolutely think it's going to be Taylor Person Swift. of the Year? Yeah. Biggest business impact, biggest entertainment impact. Huh. Football impact. Come on. Who's had more impact over the years on the economy? Okay. And the Nobel Peace Prize goes to Beyonce? I mean, what what are you smoking? I'm the one that does drugs. What are you thinking? Taylor Swift? What do you have to say for yourself? It's just so unusual for you and the editors of this program to revisit a part of Pivot where you're the hero and I'm the idiot. It just... No, you are like really hostile about this. You have a problem with Taylor Swift. That's not hostile, girlfriend. Shake it off, Kara. Shake it off. <laughs> oh, see, you know this song. Stephen Miller and you agree about Taylor Swift. So are all the incels on. They had a bad day yesterday because Cat Lady won the uh, Time Person of the Year. The incels don't like Taylor Swift? Oh, no. Oh, my Why God. They lost their fucking minds. Well, top incel, Steve Miller, even though he's married and has children, uh, he was said that her popularity is not organic, which I'm like, you're you're made in a lab, you strange little how man. Is it, how is it inorganic? I don't get it. 
he just doesn't think he thinks it's made up by the media, which is not. It's a pheno- it's a real phenomenon. She's a real phenomenon. It's made up by money. A lot of people spend a lot of money to see her. That's correct. That's correct. So I want you to reflect on Sam Altman got CEO of the year. Um, probably good that he didn't get Time Person of the Year because of all the recent controversy. It probably that's kind of something. It's probably good for him not to get more attention at this moment. Um, but what do you think of this choice? I mean, economically important, culturally important business, uh, people's excitement. There's a joy to it because there's so many, so much bad news. Someone who has an impact on young voters, a woman who has a cat, obviously, which I think is critically important. Cat lady. She posed with her cat, Benjamin Button, on the uh, cover. Cat looked good. Uh, thoughts? Just any thoughts or not at all? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, it's Times Person of the Year. And I would argue that Mark Benioff, you know, it was recently announced that Mark Benioff is clickbait whore of the year. No, stop it. Can't you just give this woman a, her due economically? I, okay, that, I want to get Cara, to the heart Cara, of it. Go, let, ahead, okay. go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Who do you think has had more consequence, more impact on the world this year? Chairman Jerome Powell or Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. Yeah, I don't agree. Well, you know, there's been a lot of people like him. I think it's a nice pick. I think it means a lot to a lot of people. I do think she's a phenomena. I think she's a nice role model for young people, especially young women. I think I think it's a really feel good, nice pick that makes absolutely no sense if you really look at what's happening in the world. I would agree, but it doesn't always have to be gloom and fucking doom. When when Elon got it, everyone was like, of course he well, got that's it. That's it. What are the criteria? What are the criteria? Well, I'm I'm saying Elon got it, and everyone's like, of course, the greatest thinker of all time. And here's someone who, by the way, the Fed noted helped to stave off recession. The Fed itself said it. But, you know, I don't want to have to prove this woman, but I think it's fine to pick someone who we've, it's happened many times before. Certain entertainers really reach beyond. They they do. There's a, there's not that many of them. I, you know, whatever you think of Michael Jackson, he certainly did. Oprah. Um, there's several, uh, and there's other international celebrities that have a bigger impact, both economically and culturally. And and I do think she does have political power. I think she does. It's a nice pick. I'm glad that you're happy. I like your glasses. I like your bracelets. It felt more like people's person of the year oh, than time. Gosh. I think, I don't know. Anyways, I, look. What does she have to do? What does she have precisely, like, run for office, solve cancer? To be Times Person of the Year? Yeah, because it's been, it's, that's, Times Person of the Year has changed many times over the years. And it's sometimes, one, t- one year it was Jeff Bezos's head in a box. Actually, you know what? That's a fair point. If it can be Bezos, why couldn't it be Taylor Swift? They're both, you know, they're both sort of business people, for lack of a better term, that have had a big economic impact. I'm, I'm happy you're happy. Congratulations, Taylor. I'm sorry for you and Stephen Miller. You really shouldn't group me in with Stephen Miller. <laughs> I know, I'm not. But I'm fascinated that, you know, it's not just you. There's a lot of men that are like, uh, it's like, you like football stars. No, I you don't. Like, no, everybody I don't. has their you're, you're, you're making a stereotype about me. You're, not you, not you, one. Because supposedly I do have a penis and testicles, you immediately conflate my behavior with all toxic male behavior, which is a stereotype. Who, who is someone that excites you? I'm going to finish this off on a positive note. Who is someone that inspires you who is not necessarily a business leader? Messi, an athlete? Lots of athletes inspire you, correct? I'm inspired by dorks. I like Sam Harris and Jonathan Hyde. If you were looking for an athlete, um, yeah, I, I think Serena Williams is really inspiring. I think uh, Messi is really inspiring. He was athlete of the year. Yeah, he was athlete of the year. He's kind of single-handedly brought attention to the MSL. But I would argue that Taylor Swift or Messi, that made the right choice. I think Taylor Swift is more... I mean, Taylor Swift, to a certain extent, versus Messi, kind of represents the economic power of of women and girls. Um, and also, 
one of the nice things about it is it reflects that people are getting out of their homes and getting together again. I think that's a nice part of it. Fair. That is a really nice point. But I like Taylor Swift. I'm a little straight girl for Taylor Swift. I'm like, we The least surprising, surprising news you're ever going to hear. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of stars, speaking of gay, uh, George Santos is a cameo star. The booted congressman reportedly made more on the platform in 48 hours than his annual salary in Congress. Santos originally listed videos for $75, but his price quickly rose to 400 I what do you th- I think he'll probably be over pretty pretty quick but what do you think of this this is he's quite appealing on cameo I hate to say it cuz he's a thief and a liar Yeah I, I mean it's sort of another piece of evidence of the decline of western civilization where there's money in being famous regardless of what you're famous for and this guy is famous because he's not only a liar and a thief he yeah, a broke liar and a thief he seems to lean into it he's being rewarded economically rewarded for being shameless full stop he's not you know, most most of the times when these Congress people were accused of something they knew they were guilty of, they tried to slither away under the cover of dark. He's like, no, I'll go on Cameo. So I think it's cute. I can see why people think it's funny. Well, people have done that. They go on Dancing with the Stars if someone has, you know, that's not a new, new phenomenon, right? There's some people who've done that. Yeah, but this is a guy who was elected to the people's house and was lying and stealing campaign money. And I, I don't know. This is not. Oh, it's actually saved Cameo a little bit. I, you know, that's been a bumpy, a bumpy company. Yeah, they're still around. Good for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. They've got to get these phenomena. This will be over rather. This is like a pet rock. A lot of people reach out to me and ask me to record videos for their dad or something like that. Do you get those? Oh, no. You get a lot of those. I mean, I guess if we went on there, we should test it. We should test Cameo. Do you want to do that? And then we'll give money away to charity? I do them for free. And by the way, this is not an invitation to reach out to me, but I do quite a few of them, actually. Yeah, but maybe we should do that and raise some money for something good. Yes. Sending George Santos to a Taylor Swift concert. Oh, he loves Tay-Tay. He quotes her all the time. Uh, and I'm sure she's horrified. I look forward to never thinking about George Santos again. And that is unfortunately not going to happen in your life. Anyway, uh, speaking of something that was somewhat of a weird, strange Angry circus. Another Republican debate happened without the front runner, and they didn't really talk about him except for, thank goodness, for uh, Chris Christie. Following a recent momentum, Nikki Haley received the most attacks on stage, topics ranging from China, Ukraine, or former role of Boeing. There was a whole lot of discussion of children's genitals and what it was a lot of the woke stuff uh, going back between her and Ron DeSantis was a little disturbing. Uh, DeSantis said he was sick of hearing about polling numbers. So, well, he should be. And of course, Chris Christie actually acquitted himself well that he did his job, which is to bring the focus onto the person who wasn't there, Donald Trump. But he also called Vivek Ramaswamy the most obnoxious blowhard in America. I, he's probably right. He's at least in the top 1%, I guess. Let's listen. You Tell say this, you, you do this, you do this at every debate. You go out on the stump and you say something. All of us see it on video. We confront you out on the debate stage. You say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to I'll say what? Exactly no, what I said, Chris. I, I'm not I done yet. Well, this now is now look. This is, and this is not a spew. This man is nonsense. Al, there you go. What did you think? I think these are just another example of a lack of decorum that is eroding brand America. And I would like to move to, and they're fun. It's titillating to see people you don't like or, you know, people you do like embarrass other people. But it's just not, it's, these are supposed to be the the president, whoever becomes president, it's supposed to be the ultimate role model for young Americans, or at least one of them. And this isn't how you get there. And it's the, it's the wrong, these are the wrong people to to model. I would like to see debate reform where everyone else's mic is shut off and they do real-time fact-checking. 
when one person is speaking. I think these things have become such food fights and you get reward and incentive for interrupting the other person or dunking on them. And I just, I think we need a new model here. Let me just say though, Chris Christie's job was to focus on Trump, right? Because they aren't. They need to talk about the front runner. And none of these people were willing to do that. Well, that's fine. And he did quite well, I thought. That was probably the best. That's not what bothers me. It's it's them making personal jabs at people who have no chance of getting the nomination. It's interrupting each other. It's yelling at each other. It's not in any way addressing real policy. It's okay. Nikki Haley's up in the polls and Vivek has seven points I need to go after. So I'm going to personally attack them. And there's just, I didn't even watch the thing. One of the things that struck me about it was I couldn't find it. It was on News Nation. Yes. And then Megyn Kelly was back being Megyn Kelly. She didn't do a bad job. I think Megyn's very good at that. She tried to hold it together. I don't agree with her political views. I know you absolutely don't agree with her political views. I think she's a pro though. It's not the political views. She screams a lot. Go watch. Would you accuse a man of screaming? I would. I would. I don't like screaming anything. I don't like screaming. Screaming, as you were just saying. I think she's great. I think she's a total pro. Go watch a few screamies and then you'll see what I'm talking about. She's better than that. That's what I don't think she has a lot of problematic thoughts, but she's quite a professional broadcaster. And I think she's she's throwing red meat to her. She knows her market. Um, Yeah, I think she's better than that. I want to go back to the old style debates where people show a certain amount of respect for each other and there's some decorum. I would like to see the moderators just cut people off or cut their mics. I just if you, everybody gets, you have rules. You uh, question, you know, you answer the question. You maybe there's a part where the mics are turned off and people can go. But these things just feel like more like food fights. I don't think the news organizations have control of these things. I think the, the people who the candidates do now. I mean, that's the thing. Is it's not run by the news organizations. And one of the things that's, you know, I wonder if you go back to who said the Jack Kennedy thing? Lloyd Benson. Lloyd Benson. That was a bit of a, for that, it was a dunk. Um, and, you know, Reagan was different. He did funny things like, I'm not going to take advantage of your youth and inexperience. And that was witty, actually. Um, although it would be considered a dunk. N- not today, it wouldn't. But I, I do think they... This I was disappointed in the topics they they went into besides the the personal attacks and the, the the trying to dunk on each other. I did like when Haley said when they said, "Do you want to address what he just said to?" And she goes, "I don't want to talk about him. I don't want to deal with him. He's an idiot." Essentially, I thought that was a really good way uh, of her to respond. It's like I'm not going to engage with this this most obnoxious blowhard in America, essentially. But you're right. I mean, but they, you know, all the topics I kept thinking, is that what people really care about right now is is weird, weird debates about transgender kids. And, you know, they just keep on the same old hits and nothing fresh about what we're going to do about a lot of stuff. But even just, I I didn't watch the debate, but I, I already know the questions. Did they ask, with respect to economic policy over the last three years, what would you have done differently than then President Biden, please be specific. There just needs to be more pointed. Uh, having said that, I didn't see that. I don't even know where to watch News Nation. News is, that's where Elizabeth Vargas and Chris Cuomo are, right? Yeah, I like Elizabeth. She was there too. She was on stage. I think she's quite a pro. Uh, but yeah, you're right. They think they've lost control of it. It's just, it's like Twitter live, essentially. Uh, it was, it wasn't as good a thing. And I don't think it's going to move the needle. And Trump is the point. And they, the three of them don't want to talk about And unfortunately, the incentives now, the incentives are all the, the front runner from this point forward. Most likely the front runner is not going to show up to debates. Yeah, might not. Well, look what's happened to Trump's numbers. Every time he doesn't participate in a debate, his approval goes up because it's like, it's like, okay, would you want to show up 
you know, would you want to show it? It's it's like they're showing up to a KKK rally. Anyone who shows up, it just hurts your brand. Yeah. Yeah. So your best your best bet is just to not show up. I wonder if he'll show up to if he's with against Biden, if he'll show up to those debates. Yeah, he will because he's he'll I think he'll think he's polling behind. Um, but if I were Biden, I wouldn't do it. Oh shit, I don't know. I, I can't I, I'm already nervous about the Biden Trump debates. I think he'll be fine. He did a wonderful interview with um Anderson Cooper, yeah, on Greece. Anderson Cooper, yeah. by the way. It was really oh. It was quite lovely. Anyway, um, let's go on a quick break. No more Taylor Swift, Scott, for the rest of the show. I don't believe you. Um, When we come back, university presidents in hot water, the new AI Alliance, and more. Plus, our friend of Pivot is veteran ad exec Lou Pascalas, who will weigh in on Linda Yaccarino's future at X. He's written, he was a very close associate of hers and now has other things to say. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Atlassian. One of our customers who produces pizza at a very large scale all across the world. Believe it or not, they use AI to review the quality of the pizzas that are created. That goes through a workflow that scans the images of the pizzas and makes sure they visually look like what they should. So it's pretty cool. That's Sharif Mansour, Atlassian's head of AI. Sharif thinks there's a lot for companies to be excited about on the AI-generated horizon, spanning everything from making pizza to producing podcasts like the one you're listening to now. There'll be far more jobs created on the other side of this revolution. Instead of a world of less, Sharif envisions an AI-powered world of more. In everyone's day job, they're moving from doing the thing to often being an architect of the thing. It unleashes the potential of every human. And I think we can go from a world where few people have access to a high level of intelligence to a lot more people having access to this information. AI is really giving everyone on the planet more resources to do great things. And I'm very optimistic about that opportunity that lies ahead. Transform teamwork with the power of AI-human collaboration. Start using Atlassian intelligence for your Atlassian products like Jira and Confluence now. Learn more at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Scott, we're back with more news to talk about. This was astonishing, I have to say. The presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT are facing criticism, more than criticism, after testifying before Congress about the handling of anti-Semitism on their campuses. Uh, Representative Elise Stefanik asked whether calling for genocide of Jews violated the school's code of conduct and whether students should be disciplined. It's a very easy question, and I don't much like her, but she handled it pretty well, and it was a, it was a good question. Um, the three presidents, of course, it was for show too, but it was still a good question. The three presidents mostly avoided giving direct and definitive answers, which a lot of people are taking issue with. Let's listen to University of Pennsylvania's President Liz McGill's response to Stefanik on the question of whether calls for genocide constituted harassment. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? 
If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. Penn's president later released a video statement. It was almost worse to clarify her comments. The White House weighed in, noting that it's unbelievable that this needs to be said. Calls for genocide are monstrous and antithetical to everything we represent as a country. I'm going to get you in a second. One of the things I was thinking about, and this is why I have an issue with, you know, I, I... I think this was atrocious, this behavior. And they're not on college campuses where you can stay late up night debating these issues. It was a congressional hearing. They should have understood the context of that and what they were saying to the general public. I, I don't understand why if they were defending, uh, uh, say, let me use something for myself, gays and lesbians, why they wouldn't defend this easily. At the same time, those who thought that it was wrong to defend gays and lesbians who were free speech, free speech are now like, it's no such thing as free speech on this speech. This is obviously hate speech and and should, you know, should there should be, especially if it's genocide, if you're saying ceasefire or other things or Palestinians are being abused, that's a very different thing than uh, Stefanik's very uh, clever question, um, which seemed to be clear to any normal person. What, what did you think? Oh, I thought it was embarrassing for them. They came across as weak and over-lawyered. They were clearly coached to try and seem empathetic, but say nothing. And they were smirky. And and I just want to read a statement that President uh, Gay put out. Um, she said, like many of you, I've watched in pain and horror uh, the events unfolding, triggered by callous and depraved actions. We have been here before too many times, and that familiarity is part of the heartbreak and outrage of this moment. Even as the global fight against the pandemic has forged new bonds and inspired new acts of profound generosity, we are confronted again by old hatreds and the enduring legacies of racism and inequality. So she put it, that's a powerful statement. It's accurate. Um, But she was writing about George Floyd or the murder of George Floyd. And that is, these presidents have been unequivocal and strong. Um, and resolute uh, about other outrageous things that have happened. And and here's here's the problem. It's not the issue of whether, it's not around whether this is hate speech or free speech. That's not the issue here, in my view, or what's causing the controversy. Because I would argue that, uh, you know, that if you're a group of students are walking in a march and they start saying from the river to the sea, I'm not sure that doesn't qualify as free speech. Now, we can have an argument over that, but the the problem here is the inconsistency, and that is, uh, over the last 10 years, I have been getting emails that have been very powerful and resolute, showing leadership around, we will not tolerate microaggressions. And when there are certain um, uh, horrible, horrible occurrences in our society, the president's office comes out with an emotional, declarative, definitive statement. And then... The events of October the 7th happen, and we start hearing words like contextualize or nuance. Which nobody understands. And if they were to follow what the University of Chicago has done, which, which I think, quite frankly, is the way to go to say that university leadership should be the sponsors and hosts of critics, but not critics themselves, and just not weigh in on any of these issues, I think that's a very defensible position. I think that's probably, I mean, Jeffrey Sonnenfeld would argue with me, but I think that's probably the best decision. But what they're doing here, what what is so disturbing to some alumni and people, and especially Jews, is that they seem to have very, very big balls when it comes to um, attacks, when when there are attacks and when there uh, is aggression or there is hate speech against other vulnerable communities. 
But when there is uh, literally the definition of hate speech calling for violence and genocide against a group that constitutes 2% of our population, they want to take a breath. They want to take a moment and talk about the nuance in the context. And that is the problem here, because I think it's a defensible position to say that directly calling, other than saying, let's head to the room where there's a there's a meeting of, of Jewish kids and harass them, which has happened on campuses. Other than that, we're going to defer to free speech. I think that is a defensible position. What is not defensible is when you start firing professors for saying stupid things or when you block let students blockade events where they're having a conservative speaker and you give in. I mean, the inconsistency here is stifling. It is a moment where I kept thinking it's so I'm going to give students a little bit of a pass here, the way I like to do comedians or something like that, because they're not, they don't, they don't understand complexity and compromise and that life is full of, good God, we have to talk to the fucking Saudis, even though, I, you know, Agreed. it's they're terrible, that kind of thing, right? Um, because of other reasons, there's all kinds of choices in life. And they'll get that over the course of life and it sucks. It just doesn't, no one ever feels good about it. But in this case, you're right. They didn't, they, they're going to support gays and lesbians, which I appreciate if someone said gays and lesbians should be killed or uh, black people or anybody, right? It, it, they should, it should apply, the rules should apply the same. I think they should, I think you're probably right. Waiting in is a real problem, but genocide, the word genocide, and, and I don't know about from the river to the sea because it is a terrifying, you know, it's a terrifying word for many Jewish people, I think. And so I don't know. It's it, it, there's They just have to start making lines, that's all. And, uh, and on the other side, I appreciate a lot of people pushing back at these university heads. And at the same time, they won't push back at Elon Musk. They won't push back when it, when it counts either. So I'd like consistency from the so-called free speech warriors too. I'd like a little consistency on, on their behalf too. But everyone... None of us are there either. That's the thing. And everyone is losing their minds here in a really strange and unfortunate way. This, But this was just atrocious. I don't, I, do you think they should be fired? Two of the three, if not three of the three, they will wait for this to calm down such that the university is not seen as kowtowing to, you know, one side or the other. But within the next 12 months, Two of the three, if not three of the three of these folks will decide to move on and they'll move on. Which ones? I'm curious. Well, I don't know which ones, but here, here's the bottom line, Kara, is that at universities, we become total fucking whores. We're all about money, full stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. That's what I was going to ask why they're doing this. Yeah. And and the reason why they will move on is that uh, what's happened slowly but surely over the last 30 or 40 years at universities is we have built up uh, every morning the leadership and administrators at universities wake up and look in the mirror and ask themselves one question. How do we increase our compensation while reducing our accountability? And they found the ultimate, uh, the ultimate cloud cover to achieve that with all of these ridiculous departments and ethics and leadership and sustainability and ESG and diversity, equity, and inclusion that no one could measure. They they're all make sense. They all sound great. They have absolutely no measurable outcomes. The administrative bloat has grown between 50 and 100% just in the last 20 years on campuses. The result is skyrocketing tuition. And what we've also had is the Rolexification of these campuses. UCLA looks more like the Mandarin Oriental Bel Air now than a public campus. 
And in order to feed the beast of waste and administrative arrogance and self-aggrandizement and relaxification, we have to raise a shit ton of money from alumni. And a lot of alumni, a lot of alumni, especially Jews, but a lot of non-Jews have said, you know what? I have no desire to fund this bullshit. And that is what is going to get them fired. Because at the end of the day, here's what we are. We're like a really high-end whorehouse at this point. And it's like, okay, brag about it. It's like that Club 11 in Miami. It's a strip club, but it's kind of cool. I hear people- Never been I there. haven't either, but okay. we should go together. That's what we should do. If I, if I go to Taylor Swift, we're going to 11. Anyways, people brag about going to 11. And effectively, these have become the most prestigious, highest-end certification whorehouses. It's all about money. And that's I, why I these- want, okay. I'm going to ask. That's why these you, folks will leave. Can I get to some solutions here? Yes, please. I okay. So Stephen that. Pinker put out a tweet that someone forwarded me that I thought made it a lot of sense. He said, the wrong way for the elite universities to dig themselves out of their reputational hole restricts speech even more. Instead, one, clear and coherent free speech policy. Two, institutional neutrality. Universities are forums, not protagonists. Three, force prohibited. No more hecklers, vetoes, building takeovers, classroom invasions, intimidations, blockades, assaults. Four, disempower DEI bureaucrats responsible to no one who have turned campuses into laughingstocks. Five, viewpoint diversity. Discourage political and intellectual monocultures, including hard left, and intersectional speech. It, I, I, care, I can't tell you how we have the, the term I would use for universities over the last 20 years in terms of the zeitgeist and sort of the, the feel of the vibe is we are all barking up the same tree. And if you don't bark up the same tree, you are shamed and potentially fired. And that has resulted in, it's just so interesting. We were all waiting for the disruption in higher ed to be a function of money or of not good outcomes in terms of ec economics or student loan debt uh, failure or bad student loan debt. And it's not. This is what's disrupting higher education. Do you realize that Republicans now view higher ed in the same light in terms of approval as Congress and moderates? It, the now less than half of American adults feel that going to college is a good idea for their kids. You, it's Yeah, I see that. It's expensive and you don't get in and you feel bad. I get it. I get it. It's I'm just gonna, crazy. I'm going to interject. It was What was to me interesting was uh, Lawrence Tribe, who is a har famous Harvard person, um, said, I'm no fan of Rep uh, Stefanik, but I'm I'm with her here. Claudine Gay's hesitant, formulaic, and bizarrely evasive answers were deeply troubling to me and many of my colleagues, students, and friends. And then he also noted uh, even the attempted clarifications by these university presidents opting for what they mistook for legal nuance over what should have been a simple moral clarity showed how easily a search for political correctness can triumph over wisdom and courage alike. This is a very liberal person saying this, like someone who's, you know, very committed. But it goes to a bigger issue, just, just so we can get, or I can get in trouble. Um, I think that we've raised an entire generation of kids through uh, college that have basically said, we need to be in touch with some of the wrongs of our history, and that's a good thing. And unfortunately, I think a lot of it has led down to this road of oppressors versus the oppressed. And sometimes, unfortunately, that ends up being shorthand for the oppressed are people, the richer and wider they are, the more likely they are to be oppressors. And so you just see this, in, in my view, this is what essentially amounts to anti-Semitism amongst a younger generation, where they just are inclined to have a bias against Israel and um, and and Jews. When have you seen anything like this against a vulnerable group on campuses? 
gays. I'm sorry, back in the day, back way back in the day. But let me. Were they calling for the death of gays, though? No, 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 not well. It was a different thing. Look, I, it, this is sort of stack ranching tra- tragedy. G- gays, it was pushed under. Yes, it was, but there was arrests. There was all kinds of. I don't, it's, I don't want to compare it. It's not even comparable. What's happened to Jewish people is so far and above. This is so heinous what's happened here. Gays were put in concentration camps too. And that's what- Yes, agreed. Like, I, I'm not even going to, we're not going to stack right this. I, th- this, th- what these presidents did was heinous. It really was. And I was sort of like shocked that they just couldn't be people and understand that question. Um, and I, I, again, Stefanik always tries all kinds of tricks, but in this case, it was the right question. Um, uh, let me, we, we need to move on just a little bit, but, um, but it's really, um, it was really not good for the brand higher education in any way, and ma- will make it worse because um, I think people who supported higher education they, they lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of um, credibility. Uh, someone who's trying to gain credibility is actually doing a great job is Cheryl Sandberg. She condemned Hamas for using sexual violence as a weapon of war at a UN summit. She had written a very uh, widely read um, piece before and did a video that was quite graphic. She said, silence is complicity. Sandberg said, in the face of terror, we cannot be quiet. Several people shared harrowing firsthand accounts of what they had witnessed after the October 7th attack. Sandberg has been raising awareness of the issue for about a month. Um, Especially it took since the UN, uh, for UN women to condemn sexual violence. So she sort of forced them into it. Uh, this is the good use of Sheryl Sandberg when she wants to take a topic. And it, it was, I was surprised this was the topic. Um, she's been rather quiet. Um, and I would have to give, uh, it's not about her, but I give kudos to her for putting it front and center, um, and sort of forcing this group's, these, these, these groups to say something about what was, you know, now that a lot of the, the proof is coming in. It, these were these were directed uh, rape as a weapon of terror and war, and also repulsive in every way. So, yeah, I I, I agree. I'm, I'm I don't know if you've picked up on this, but I'm not a huge fan of Cheryl Sandberg. Yes, I got that. Yeah, but um, I think she should be commended, and I personally am moved and uh, really commend her for using her platform and her voice to speak out about this. I find it just strange. Not only the feminists haven't spoken out against Hamas more forcefully, but the uh, the definition of stupid, according to P- Carlos Chipola at Berkeley, is something that hurts others and you hurt yourself. And I, I just don't understand endorsing, protecting, being an apologist for a philosophy and ideology and a terrorist group. I think it was more silence. I, I think with, with, in this case, I think nobody talked about which w- was clearly one of the more horrific I agree. elements. It was not just rape. It was rape and then murder falling. So. And it's just hugely disappointing that special interest groups – look, I think Jews were totally there in civil, for civil rights for non-whites. I think Jews were there for the LGBTQ community. And I think a lot of Jews right now feel like they're, they're, not, they're not there for us. And the, the other thing that's really disappointing to me, I don't think enough Jews are speaking out. And the reason why – and I'm experiencing this firsthand. Our, our downloads are up here at Pivot. My downloads at Prop G are down. And I speak a lot about Israel, and it's turning off a lot of young listeners. And 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 so there's there's real incentive. Yeah, we're getting a lot of letters. We certainly. there's a oh, you should see the shit I'm getting. There's a there's a lot of incentive to just keep quiet on this issue, 
And what I would say to other Jews, and I, I, I'm just really disappointed. I mean, it's like Jessica Seinfeld, Deborah Messing. I mean, there's like it's like a small number of Jews actually speaking out. And I'm like, where the fuck is everybody? And because I think it's word is out that young people are not anti-Israel. I won't even say anti-Semitic, but anti you know, but but have real empathy for Hamas. So everyone's just saying, let's just keep it on the low down. Let's just well, keep quiet. Well, they have empathy for Palestinians. Most of them have empathy for Palestinians. Let's be clear. It's not, it's, it's not, it's a very small. But, but I'm just shocked there aren't more people using their platform, as Sheryl Sandberg is, to say, this isn't cool. It's disappointing. She's really effective. This is the Sheryl Sandberg I like. I have not talked to her for a while because of our disagreements over Facebook. Um, and we, we've known each other very well for a very long time. And uh, she reached out to me to ask me to to um, put it out there and, and help amplify it. And I gladly did it. I was thrilled she did this. Um, but uh, I was, it was, I'm glad to be back in touch with her. And I I really like that she's using her platform for serious issues like this. And and it's, it, she's good. She's good at it. This was, had she made better decisions at Facebook, I think this is the politician you would have seen. This is the leader. You know what I mean? Like you, you can see the the talent in doing it. And it's not, again, it's not, she, she very deftly didn't really make it about her, but she definitely gathered people to, to talk about it and force the issue, which is her great strength. But this is the last point here. What I would say to, other Jews who, for you know, what feels like good reasons in the short term, just to keep keep quiet on this because you are you you may alienate parts of your audience, is that we were way too quiet ninety years ago, and this is, I'm I'm just uh, I'm not only disappointed in feminists, the non-white community, the LGBT community, in my view, or special interest groups or other vulnerable groups who haven't come to, in my opinion our side, the way we came to theirs. I'm also really disappointed in a lot of Jews who have platforms who haven't spoken up. I, 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 we can't be quiet on this. Yeah, it's true. I think the problem is nobody likes Netanyahu. I think that's what where they start. You know what I mean? Diabolical, like, 100%. Diabolical. I, I agree. Let's move on to the last thing. It's really, this is a big week for AI. And there's three things that were important. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Meta is teaming up with IBM to form the, quote, AI Alliance. This is about compute, bringing together more than 50 organizations dedicated to open source AI work. This is something Meta has worked on. They're, they're moving, they're the sort of the open source side. Um, the alliance is focused on six areas, including regulation and safety. They're eventually a governing board and a technical oversight committee. We'll see how that works. Open AI is not current part of this, nor is Google, because they are the big players. Those are the two big players. Um, Google is also making AI news with the launch of its new model. Model Gemini, which is quite impressive. They finally sort of gotten up to speed here. Uh, it's with their deep minds and their Google brain divisions combined. Uh, they're saying it's the largest, most capable model. Gemini is described as natively multimodal because it was trained on images, video, and audio. It will power Google's generative AI chatbot Bard. Uh, Google scientists posted a very impressive video of all the things it could do, interpreting pictures, creating games, being a little funny. Um, it, it's definitely a rival to chat, uh, GPT. Uh, I was at OpenAI headquarters, uh, two days ago, and, uh, I think they really feel like the race is with Google for sure, uh, talking to their executives. And then lastly, Elon Musk's artificial intelligence startup XAI has filed the, with the SEC to raise a billion dollars. It seems like that he's already raised it from, if you read it correctly, they say they've raised 135 million, but it looks like they've raised 
Otherwise, he said he wasn't raising money on X, but the, then he had an SEC filing, so I don't know what's going on. I posted on threads that this is basically a valuation Hail Mary for X, since current X shareholders apparently get 25%. This is how he's going to get out of this mess, because they're using compute and data from Twitter. He's combining a lot of his companies in order to do this. Thoughts on all of this? This is a big week. This is a big, important week, as you start to see the players uh coalesce on the on the field. Google is where a lot of this technology was initially invented and formed. And they all of a sudden overnight look like one of the most innovative companies uh, transitions. You know, they go to sleep on a Thursday night and they wake up Friday morning with open AI and they look flat footed. So I can't imagine the call to arms that uh, Sundar and the team there and shareholders feel. Uh, And my guess is they have I mean, they have everything they need. They have a massive amount of capital. They have compute. They have a ton of original um, IP. They have interface to, to, you know, guide people or shove them into this to get them to trial it. Um, I saw the video on it. It was really compelling on Gemini it, talking about how it was describing what someone was drawing. So this is, yeah, absolutely. The I thought the more interesting story was um, XAI. First off, I couldn't figure out why Elon Musk needed to raise a billion dollars, why he wouldn't do it himself. It's also not enough. He needs much more considering what's going on at Google and OpenAI and Anthropic. Four billion from Amazon, but go ahead. 100%. I would say at this point, I would say at this point, you probably realistically to play catch up with OpenAI. I mean, they've spent 10 or 15 to play catch up is usually more expensive. I I mean, you need a minimum of 10 billion, I would think. And two... I think it's another lesson in corporate governance because Twitter doesn't have a board and Tesla effectively doesn't have a board. If I were, for example, on the board of X and he was raising, he was going to do a distinct company called XAI. Some people would call it AI washing where he's trying to just have a distinct company and get the valuation of an AI company, but this will be actual AI. But if I were on the board of Twitter and you'd have to have a board to have a board member, I would say, why? if we're giving you the brand... We're going to give you the input, and that is all the data that streams through the Twitter platform. Why are we only going to own 25% of it? I'll tell you what. Let's raise a billion dollars into the large organization Twitter. Even with a beaten down valuation, we won't have to give up more than 10% to raise that billion. And Twitter shareholders will own 90%, not 25%. But here's the problem, Kara. There's no one there to raise these questions. So he can just do whatever he wants. This is this is simple that Elon Musk, who is a visionary and has this great kind of um, generative, I don't know, whatever you would call it, this great data to crawl on Twitter. At least it sounds like it'd be great data. He has the ability to raise a ton of awareness. He has a platform he can roll it out on Twitter, but he only wants to give them 25% of it. That is an excellent, I hadn't thought of that. Well, that's stuff. why I'm here, Kara. <laughs> I know, but he, it is a valuation Hail Mary for Twitter, right? He's trying to... To, to get the valuation of an AI company using... That Twitter won't recognize. Twitter only recognized 25% of it. He's trying to cart off with 75% of the value for himself personally. No board would allow this bullshit. Well, they're going to get nothing with just Twitter by itself, right? So that's probably what he could say. He's sucking the life out of this company in so many different ways. He's like a vampire. Make it a distinct company, distinct legal entity, you know, x.ai. Twitter Twitter raises a billion dollars. They could still do that for this thing. They put in a, a billion into this wholly owned subsidiary called XAI. And then whatever the value registered there, 100% of it goes to Twitter shareholders because they're the ones that should get it. Instead, he's like, well, okay, I'll give you 25% because I'm going to use all the data in the platform. But guess who owns 75%? Elon Musk. Well, he has control of Twitter. I guess he's saying this is what you're going to get. I'm not going to make you lose money, shareholders, because you stupidly invested in 
And he's it's going to make him look like Twitter is successful by even just if he's successful with XAI, which he'll probably be moderately successful, even if he's a laggard, which he is, by the way. Although he has a good team there for sure. It's a good idea. It's a really good idea. You brought up the notion he's going to need a lot more than a billion dollars to to do anything to compete. He brings something the other guys don't have, and that is he'll he'll get massive awareness. He'll tweet about it every day, and he'll 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 let it spread conspiracy theories such that people people just talk about it all day long. He'll go red pill on it. It'll be the conservative one, and people will be drawn to it. And Tucker Carlson will say, "I only use XAI or whatever." Yeah, but the the issue here I find is this: this feels like just another example of. Uh, really strange governance and self-dealing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he's going to do it anyway. It doesn't matter. But, I, you know, I think he's way behind. He's way, way behind. He's a, he was out front with Tesla. He was out front with SpaceX. He is, he is, the, Google will lap him and OpenAI has lapped him and Microsoft has lapped him. And from what I, I've been talking to a lot of AI people this past week in San Francisco, it's Google, OpenAI slash Microsoft, and then everybody else way down. You know, Anthropic, I guess, would be up higher, and Amazon, but, and then, and Meta, now this Meta IBM thing, but pretty much that's it. I think he's a, he's a laggard here, no matter what, and he needs a lot more, he's going to need more, he's going to need a bigger boat. He has certainly hired a lot of people, and but there's such a competition for talent, and he's hired a lot of great people that want to all be called founders, I guess. Um, that's what someone told me, the reason why a lot of those people went there. They're founders. Um, but he certainly will take advantage for himself before everybody else. He's the guy who, when you, at Thanksgiving, the mashed potatoes go around, takes two big spoonfuls, and then leaves the rest for everybody else to, you know. Anyway. All right, Scott, we're going to talk more about Elon and X and Linda Yaccarino specifically, because I think he doesn't care about this ad business. He wouldn't have, even if he's crazy, he wouldn't have done that on stage. Uh, that, that, I don't think it was calculated necessarily, but he doesn't care because it doesn't matter. He's just sucking the carcass of Twitter dry for its data. Um, let's go to our friend of Pivot. Lou Pascalis is the chief strategy officer for Ad Fontes Media. He knows ex-CEO Linda Raccarino quite well and in recent weeks was one of the number of ad executives encouraging her to resign, advising her to do so uh, before her reputation is damaged, she said. He also wrote a really interesting piece about it. Uh, I've known him for a long time. He's been a big mover and shaker in the ad industry. Uh, we've recently talked quite a lot about how advertisers are not buying into news, which I want to get to at the end. But first, welcome, Lou. Thank you, Kara. It's a thrill to be here with you and Scott. Bucket list event for me. Uh, so nice to be working with you. You're a nice fan. Um, you've always been really nice about Pivot. Um, so let's talk first about Linda. You've known her for a long time. You were close to her. You even were very, at the time she went to Twitter, when I said, oh, no, no, this isn't going to end well. You said, oh, come on, Kara, I'll give her a chance. She'll do a good job. Um, uh, when you texted her about resigning, that was before Elon's dealbook interview, uh, have you been in touch since? And obviously you wrote that piece. What's the state of play right now? She's sort of all in, it seems. She is all in. And uh, I've texted her a number of times without reply, which is, you know, unfortunate because normally we, you know, had a great, you know, exchange very quickly. But I think she's bunkered in. I think she's really focused on staying on the mechanical bull as long as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I I think that this is very consistent with her DNA, where quitting equals failing. 
And unfortunately, that's a sort of short-term outcome in this context, whereas the long-term outcome is she probably has or maybe had the best reputation of any sell-side senior executive in the advertising industry. It was built over a quarter century, always doing the right thing, high integrity. You could rely on her, you know, her word was her bond. And I think she's now cashing those chips in for Elon in a way that I don't think he's capable of reciprocating. So after the interview, she, as you said, she sent a memo to ex-employees saying Musk, quote, shared an unmatched and completely unvarnished perspective and vision for the future. This is after he cursed out advertisers. Uh, She also, which was shocking to me, uh, she also said in the post about X standing at the unique and amazing intersection of free speech and Main Street, which was possibly one of the worst metaphors I've ever heard. Do you actually think she believes this stuff or is she just determined? What is causing this. I think she believes it now. I think she actually believes it. I Maybe not. I, I, I don't find her to be a particularly cynical person over the time I knew her. I think she wants to believe it. And I think she's searching for arguments to make it believable. And I think it's resonating with a certain audience on X uh, that, you know, has really consumed the Kool-Aid. You know, every time I, I get interviewed, I get harangued by these people who are, you know, accusing me of hating free speech, which I, I find laughable given, you know, uh, my side hustle to save news. So I think she's slowly building what um, um, uh, Walter Isaacson would have described as a reality distortion field when, you know, in the book jobs. Uh, and I think she probably sees the counter argument, but she's making the case as best she can because she's tenacious as hell and she's going to make her argument. When I wrote that Linda was going to be the CEO, um, you responded to me on Twitter saying she would be my first choice and my only choice to save the platform from the hands of its owner. You also noted, I still cannot understand why she'd subject herself to Elon Musk, however. Um, You did think it could work, correct? At the beginning, I did, because I thought it was rather self-effacing of Elon to recognize that he was never going to be able to change his behavior in such a way as to appeal to advertisers. And there were all these incidents that happened before the last Influence Council, which was a legacy of Twitter, which was a shocking meeting where he basically said advertisers were going to have to create a distance between how he himself acted and buying the platform. Uh, which is not a possibility when you work in corporate America. How the CEO speaks is, you know, is representative of the platform's values. But I thought she could influence him. I thought it was a moment where Elon said, okay, for me to be successful, I'm going to have to learn from others and I'm going to go and buy the best person I can. But he didn't empower her. It was very evident when the name change was affected that she was not part of the comms plan, which I found shocking having grown up in corporate America. She was basically behind a parade, uh, cleaning up the elephant poop and saying, rah, rah, this is great, but it didn't feel like she had a meaningful role in it. And it, it, it seems like she's not being allowed to exert the kind of influence that he paid to get and that would have helped him. And, and now that's affecting her ability to help him, even if he were to change his behavior. Scott? Good to see you, Lou. It, it's not that they've registered a 50 or a 60% decline in advertising revenue that's surprising. It's that they still have 40 or 50%. So make the bull case for advertising on Twitter. What do you think her pitch is? You're, you're in this business. Give us the pitch. NBC Universal, her old employer that's actually stopped advertising. What's the pitch to come back on the platform right now? 
Scott, I really struggle with that because, you know, I think, as you know, in its heyday, I was an enormous supporter of Twitter and I was a huge advertiser on Twitter. News broke on Twitter. Culture broke on Twitter. Sports is better with Twitter. The only use case I personally have anymore is during Formula One races, which is a very international community. And I'm a huge Formula One fan as I connect with the people that I'll never meet all over the world. And we watch in real time and we snark in real time. I think it's different if you're activating in sports, if you've got a league sponsorship, there are immediate plays to extend that. You know, keep your eye on the NFL deal. Will the NFL continue to endure being associated with Twitter in in coming years? Um, I think that's one. Um, They don't have a good uh, performance product. They never did. It's always been their weakness, their Achilles heel. So that limits their ability to appeal to DTC. And, you know, they're pivoting now to small and medium-sized businesses. You're going to need an awful lot of those to make up for the companies that walked away. And so I, as she walks into corporate America, I, I don't really know what argument that she has other than to say, activate your sponsorship. And I just read an article this morning that, uh, you know, people are moving their Super Bowl sponsorships, which was, which was always the biggest week on Twitter from a revenue standpoint. And they're moving them to TikTok. They're moving them elsewhere where it's much harder to activate, but they just don't want to take that risk. And that's where the margins are. It's those big brandy plays, not those, you know, direct-to-consumer, small uh, direct-response plays. I wouldn't know how to begin to sell that platform to any well-governed company. Wow. Not anything? You're an ad guy. Are you been, and you've been, you've heard every ad guy trying to get you to spend money. And woman, ad person. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's really hard for me to say this. I loved the platform before Elon bought it. I'm a huge fan of Lindy Acarino. I don't see a path forward with advertisers. And I think that's why Elon made the statement he did at DealBook. I think he went there wanting to deliver a message like he did. I think he knew that after his, you know, post-October 7th unfortunate retweet, that the path forward with advertising was dead to him because, you know, anti-Semitism is the third rail. And I don't think there was recovery. And so I think his approach was very much like Cortez when he landed in the New World in 1519. The first thing he did was burn the boats so nobody was going back. I think he burned the boats to advertising. Lind is going to keep trying. But he's moved on to another revenue model that he has in his head that I am not smart enough to understand. But the man's a genius. And, you know, we'll wait and see if he's got something up his sleeve that the rest of us aren't seeing. But just to just to follow up on that, if you think he's moving to a non-advertising based revenue model, what does she bring? Does she survive as CEO? She doesn't have any background in AI, doesn't have any background in payments. She's an ad salesperson. I think it's a fair question. I think that, you know, maybe what he's learning, although I would say in a, in a, in a not so you know productive way, is that. Before you jump to the new thing, you need to still continue to nurture the old thing, right? Uh, he doesn't have a good track record of doing that. Um, I, you know, I, what I do know is that you know there, there's few people that are better than Linda at figuring it out, at being able to to pivot, to adapt, whatever. And you know, she does have relationships bel- above the CMO level where some of these new revenue models that he's thinking about, some of these new businesses that he's bolting on, you know, she's kind of hinting at sponsorship, uh, which, you know, again, it's got the same set of issues, I think. Uh, But 
you know, I, th- I think she'll be around for a while. I think in the relative scheme of things, she's not that expensive considering what he's trying to do. And she can still knock on doors and get in rooms, even if she's not getting ad money as a result. When, when the advertising community, are they going to come back? Is there, it never worked before. I, it never worked for us. It never, you know, why would they, are they going to come back or is this just a, is it a pause or it's like, that's enough of this? Because there's better places to put their money, correct? Yeah, yeah. I, I, this one is really clear to me. And, you know, I put myself in the context of having run ad buying operations for major brands for three and a half decades. There is no scenario that's going to cause me to go to the management team and say, you know what? We've looked at what X has to offer from an advertising perspective, and we're going to go back up on the platform. And you're just going to have to ignore the risks of Elon Musk, his current and future antics. I don't know if the management team would laugh me out of the room or have me escorted out of the room, but I know I'd be out of a job in 24 hours because part of the job is risk mitigation. A big part of the job when you're a Fortune 500 company is saying, do the risks offset the rewards? And the risks are usually, well, we reach the right audience. Does the platform have enough scale? Does our creative resonate against this audience? This is Will our customers boycott us if we go up on uh, on Twitter? Will the board call the CEO's judgment into question? Could I get my CEO fired? These are risks that have no offset whatsoever from an advertising value. And so I would never make that recommendation. I can't imagine people wanting to come back from that. And my bigger concern isn't the GFY comment that he said to um, – uh, Andrew Ross you Sorkin. You can say it on this. You I can don't say wanna, it. I, I, listen, I leave that to you guys. Uh, it was go fuck guys. yourself, but go ahead. Several times. Okay. When he said, when he said go fuck yourself twice to advertisers, there you got me to do it. Um, I'm actually less concerned about that than what he did immediately afterward. Hi, Bob. This is what corporate communication functions fear most of all. And I have to tell you guys, and it's a topic for another day, marketing has been suborned in most major companies to corporate communications. These are risk-averse people who are really there to promote the CEO and his talk track, right? And the minute that he singled out Bob Iger, every one of them said, that's it. I'm not going near that because God forbid we go on the platform and then choose to come off again at a later date. We might get singled out and I'm not getting my CEO singled out and neither is the media guy. So I think he slammed the watertight door. He's dogged it down and he has moved on and advertisers on the other side of it are not pushing on that door at all. I I think it's a parting of the ways and I really doubt you're going to see major well-governed companies come back. Wow. Well, there it is. And you think she's staying no matter what. Is she ruined her career or can she recover if she leaves? No, you know, I still look at this as the biggest virtual intervention in history. The entire ad community, people who do what I do, uh, all of whom, you know, we know each other. It's a Yenta Fest. We all, yeah, we go to the same events. We have the same conversations. We're trying to run an intervention for her to get her out. There's a million things she could go do. She could run Amazon's ad platform. She could, you know, she can recover from this. The only thing that, you know, you have to give her a mulligan on is the Vox interview, which was a whole other thing that you guys have talked about before, which was just on her best day. But she's so well-respected in the industry. Everybody would be like, well, she tried. We kind of thought it wasn't going to work because of him. It didn't. It's not her fault. And now she's going to end up somewhere else. So I think she's got runway. But she's now doubled down. Like, she's really doubled down. Lou. Yeah, I I know. I know. 
she's doubled down, but she's doubled down against climbing Mount Everest, where a lot of people fail. And, you know, I said in an interview last week, you know, that hill went from steep to vertical now because of his behavior. But she's she's not going to let go of it. But the, the advertising community will give her a break. The question is, you know, will people who don't know her, but who seem to have formed opinions of her in the last couple of months, also give her that break. And that is, you know, unknown. So Lou, you sit at sort of the helm of the bobsled looking at flows of advertising revenue, just more broadly speaking. And by the way, just a quick comment, as someone who didn't know or anything about Linda before, I think this has been a total disaster for her. Uh, To me, she just looks... Not not knowing how impressive a person she is, and I trust your judgment, and, and Karis has said very complimentary things of her. Coming into this with a clean slate, she strikes me as the worst CEO of the year, hands down. If time had said worst CEO of the year, it would have been this individual is just being mocked and made a fool of, and every day just looks worse and worse. But anyway, um, the... You sit at the you, you get you have a bird's eye view into capital and advertising flows across the major platforms and major mediums. I just love your sort of cliff notes on which platforms are doing better than people think, not as well as people think. Like, what are you seeing out there in the ecosystem? You know, I think there's really a search for quality engagement, and the places that you get the kind of quality engagement have bifurcated based on the audience that you're going after. Uh, you're seeing certainly um, one social platform emerge as the you know the sort of killer app, and that's TikTok. Marketers have to work really hard to get quality engagement there, but when they get it right, they really get it right. So there's a lot more effort being put in there. There's this symbiotic ecosystem between what are called retail media networks. These are the Walmart, the Walgreens, the Albertsons. Uh, the Krogers of the world that are now in the ad business who have great first party data, Scott, but they don't have the kind of scale that they really need. And so they're forging alliances with CTV. CTV is also login. That's the Netflix of the world, the ad supported sides of Hulu, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they're trying to build an ecosystem where there's rich first party data, there's quality engagement, there's up and down funnel uh, and I do think in a broader context, uh, we're seeing some really interesting green shoots. We just did some research at Adfontes Media with Civic Science, which showed that young people are now turning back to quality news platforms um, for their news and away from social media because they feel like they were duped in 2020. So Gen Z, yeah, Gen Z and millennials, they're now saying we're not going to get duped. And I, I mean, it, it's a sign of hopefulness. It's a sign that people are kind of taking the reins back in. So I think accountability, transparency, and trust are kind of coming back in and that quality publishing in general will do well. But, you know, there are not, it's not without headwinds, as you know. But but a more pointed question, what's the easiest platform to sell for you right now to an advertiser? Look, if I'm, if, if I'm an advertiser where I'm going to start, where I get the best targetability, the best addressability, the best scale of addressability. And that is pretty much any ad-supported CTV platform. And then I would augment it with linear. And then I would go into addressable digital. Um, so what's old is new again. Uh, there's so much headwind, Scott, on programmatic right way right now that ANA just dropped their full study the other day, uh, which full disclosure I worked on, which just said that one in every $5 that's being spent in the $88 billion programmatic industry globally uh, is going to 
bad actors, either made for advertising sites that deliver a terrible experience or these uh, really low quality publishers that say, you know, if you have these three symptoms, you might be dying of fungus, which have no basis in reality. And so I think we're seeing a flight to quality. A lot of that quality is from established companies. I think you're going to actually see a little bit of a bump uh, in really old school stuff like, I'm not kidding, terrestrial radio, linear TV, things that have measurability to them that give you scale and then addressable that's accountable. And I think that's what you're going to see. And I think there's going to be a whole lot of skepticism about programmatic moving forward, which is a huge part of the digital ecosystem now. I have a last question, Lou. Um you have been pushing for this, for, for people to buy into news advertisers, which they don't want to do, even though they willingly go into more controversial platforms like X. Um, can you, very briefly, because we only have a little bit of time, why is this important? You and I had a great talk about this at, uh, in, in France at Con Lion. So we're living through an era where there's a war on truth. And I mentioned this to you when we talked. You know, I, it was eight years ago when Kellyanne Conway was standing on the lawn of the White House and answering a reporter's question by saying that the reporter, that the president was using alternative facts. And I naively Googled that. I thought that was a thing. Well, now it is a thing. And the only people who are defending the truth in the war on truth are journalists. We've seen about one third of newspapers in the United States fail, and most of them are now going to a weekly publication. That's allowing for gerrymandering in the local markets. It's allowing for all sorts of zoning and school board issues that lead to the burning of books, which you know sounds like Germany in the mid-1930s to me, uh, because you don't have local reporters there calling it out. And marketers are uniquely called out in the uh, uh, first um, amendment of the Bill of Rights um, in their, their role to support journalism, to keep politicians on track. And we've got to do more there. And in Kara, it's not just an eat your vegetables message about it's your civic responsibility to support journalism. It delivers enormous return on advertising spend. It delivers enormous unduplicated reach. These are the things that advertisers crave. And they're ignoring that because of unfounded fears about getting caught up in the cultural wars, which again are being driven by corporate communications and have no basis in fact. Yep. So people should advertise. <laughs> with news. News. Yeah. It's so much more dangerous elsewhere. It's so funny that they just, they probably want to keep up with the young people. I was just saying, I know we're at time, but what they're doing is ironically, they're moving their money unbeknownst into MFAs, these bad made-for-advertising sites, which are engineered to appeal to that money and appear to be brand safe, when in fact they're not, and they're actually taking the money away from journalism. And that $10 billion slice of pie that's going to MFAs, if that went back into journalism in the United States, you would see robust newsrooms and robust local reporting. We're the real deal, Lou. That's right. So are you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So insightful um, and fair. I have to say, I know you like Linda and I know you were very close to her and this, I, I hope she listens to you because you're, you're, you're a better friend than she realizes, I think. Agreed. Uh, I appreciate you saying that. It's an honor to be on with both of you. Thanks, Lou. Isn't he smart? I, I'm glad. What a I, I learned a lot there. I learned a lot there. Uh, all right, Scott, one more quick break. We'll be back for your predictions. Support for Pivot comes from Hidden Layer. It seems like everywhere you look, industries are turning to generative AI. We talk about it a lot on this show. Businesses can generate more ideas, answers, connections, solutions, and momentum. But at the same time, security teams are forced to slow down that progress so they can make sure AI adoption is safe and responsible. 
Hidden Layer's AI detection and response platform secures generative AI and large language models from malicious attacks, leaking of confidential information, and intellectual property theft. Hidden Layer helps you generate more by enabling seamless, secure generative AI. Here's how it works. AI detection and response protects businesses from potential attacks by monitoring and analyzing the inputs and outputs of their generative AI applications, blocking harmful transactions and alerting security teams in real time, allowing organizations to accelerate their AI adoption with speed. Customers in finance, technology, healthcare, and even the U.S. Department of Defense trust Hidden Layer to protect their AI today. Plus, Hidden Layer was named Most Innovative Startup at RSA, the most significant cybersecurity conference in the nation. With Hidden Layer, go from pause to possibilities. Generate more with Hidden Layer. Visit hiddenlayer.com slash pivot to learn more about Hidden Layer's AI detection and response solution. Okay, Scott, let's hear a prediction. I got mine right, obviously. I won't say about what. I have two and one I already made. One or two of the three university presidents that testified will be gone within 12 months. They'll wait till this is, they'll return to a faculty position, but you're going to see donations to these universities plummet. And they have created these gargantuan uh, dragons that require feeding of capital every day. Uh, and it, I say it's the Pennsylvania. Probably because I think Mark uh, Rowan carries a big, a really big stick, but so does Bill Ackman at Harvard. And I, I Rowan's played it better. He's been a little bit quieter. He's not. He's not legislating it through Twitter. Uh, I have a. Uh, I wouldn't call him a friend, but somebody I know here is a billionaire Israeli, uh, and he was so, just so negative on Netanyahu, and really just so disappointed in the far right policies and extremist policies of Israel. And then when this happened, he he basically pulled out of a huge commitment, dollar commitment to Harvard, like right away, like I'm out. And I think I would bet, I, I would bet a place like Harvard, there is so much money. I would bet that they've seen one to $5 billion in commitments just go away. Just people say, you know. Yeah, I, I, it's a lot. They've got a lot, but that is a lot. Yeah, but you know what? Money is an addictive substance, Kara. And they're not going to say the, the trustees won't go, well, we have enough. We can survive this. They'll say, sorry, guys, we have built the beast and the beast needs feeding. And we can't tell yeah, the beast. The students don't get to run this place. Yeah. yeah. And the beast, the beast doesn't, you know, we're not going to put the beast on a diet. It's going to be a hard thing because you should let people say terrible things on campuses, but not heinous thing. There's a, there is a line. So that's the hard part is that campuses should be a place for people you know, say offensive things to each other. Offensive is different than some things, right? Yeah, but uh, this is the problem. It's not about where the line is. It's about having a line that you're consistent around. And that is not publicly shaming and, and finding, you know, finding your testicles when an English professor says something stupid and then really requiring thoughtful nuance and context again around when people call for genocide. So, yeah, I know. It's interesting. It's just, I wonder what's going to happen because... You know, I don't, everyone's offended. You know what I mean? Everyone's pre-offended. How do you get back to a place where campuses encourage all kinds of debate, even offensive debate, um, and at the same time respect and are empathetic? It's very difficult. Well, ultimately, it's a nuanced call. But but look, to say that, I, I think along the lines of what Steven Pinker said, to say that university leadership is there to be the sponsor and the host of critics, but not critics themselves, that's probably a smart way to go. You just don't weigh in on the shit. 
But at the same time, I think on a regular basis, you pull people in front of a student committee and say, why were you, you know, banging on the doors of a Hillel group that was meeting? Why would, why, you're at this, you were on campus and, and we have tape of you saying, you know, calling for genocide and we're going to let a peer group, including administrators, faculty, and students decide whether you should return to this campus. Uh, I, I mean, for God's sakes, I was almost kicked out of UCLA for much less. Uh, and then my other, my other prediction is more kind of in our wheelhouse, if you will. And that is, I think one of the biggest business stories in tech in 2024 will be the entrance into AI of Apple. Apple's, you know, most valuable company in the world, most trusted brand in the world. I just don't think they're going to let, uh, everyone else run away with the AI pie. And if you look at, I have a different point of view, but go ahead, go ahead. The phone, if you look at MP3 players, if you look at streaming media, if you look at and you know wearables, they kind of watch, listen, wait, and then they strike. They're the ultimate example of the second mouse gets the cheese. And the only place they didn't was in search where they were basically bought off, where Google said, here's an idea. We'll give you 28 or $36 billion a year, whatever it is. 10. 10 billion. I thought it was more than that. Or was it 28%? A little bit, maybe. Yeah. Well, anyways, no. we'll give you this amount of money, which will all flow to the bottom line. And at a P of 20, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars market cap to not go into this space. But I don't see that happening. I don't think anyone's going to risk the antitrust scrutiny. Yeah. The, the comparative is search that they didn't. And mapping. Remember, they did and then they didn't, right? Essentially. Well, they are still there, but they're not committed in the same way. But there's a huge opening here because to use your word, and I love this word, all the generative AIs feel very, and all the chatbots feel very anodyne right now in terms of design. They don't feel very consumer friendly. They don't feel very aspirational. So why do it themselves? Like they they took them a while to get to their own chip. It took them a while. They didn't do their own search. Um, I think they must be, what, the people I talked to, I talked to a lot of AI people, but an Apple came up. I was like, why is an Apple? They kept, I kept making everyone make the list of where everybody ranked and no one said Apple, which was interesting. And I finally said at the end of these conversations, what about Apple? And they're like, well, they don't have as much compute compared to Google and Microsoft. Absolutely not. Uh, and Amazon's third. So that they don't, and that's not their area of expertise. Secondly, they tend to take advantage of technologies like this, like search rather than make it themselves. And so they can, they can integrate it into all their products. It's a question whether it's core to what they're doing, right? If, if it, it, it will help the phone no matter who makes it, right? And if they offer the right thing so that they thought they might it might be a similar situation as search. So it was interesting. I literally just had this conversation for a long time yesterday, but nobody said Apple in this group because of these reasons. And they, it, that also makes a lot of sense of why they wouldn't necessarily. But the other side is they could say this is core, like the chips that they decided to make or whatever's core to them. And they do have a lot of data. They certainly do around music, but they also make a brand out of not using data, right? So- it just feels like it's too big a, too big a barbecue not to show up to the table. Yeah, but they don't. They make a deal of not keeping your data or not owning your data or not. But isn't that okay? But couldn't they, for example, pull in Adobe and say we're the first generative AI that has all fully licensed data and doesn't? I mean, they could put they could put a privacy spin on yeah, it. Yeah, they could. They could. I, it'll be interesting to see. I think they must be thinking about it, but someone, every single person I talked about and who knows and who some people were, had been at Apple, they're trying to figure out if it's core, right? If they Or they can just get it from others and still benefit and integrate it. I think it will be core because it's all about 
uh, hey, iPhone, do this for me. Get me this. And they want it to be high quality. That's the thing. Is there? I think quality is the thing everybody talks about. Everything Apple does has to have high quality and privacy protection and content respect. These are the three things that they stand for, and they have to keep standing for it. As the most valuable company in the world and the strongest brand in the world and the, probably the biggest player in tech, can they miss out on something that is the greatest wealth creator in recent history? And that is in 2023, the stocks that drove the market were mostly AI-inspired, whether it was NVIDIA or Microsoft's really deft integration of AI. Can Does Tim Cook want to be the guy that didn't participate in that? And also, Apple it just has the luxury of, and by the way, they might outsource the technology. There was initial talks that with the Apple car that there was supposedly still a rumor on, they were going to partner with Hyundai. They weren't going to do the manufacturing. They were going to do the software and the design. They could do the same thing here. But any, I just got to think, like Apple is the ultimate signal that your kids are less likely to have infection and be taller and be faster, smarter. It's the ultimate soft signal of mating attractiveness. And I just see a lot of people, if given the opportunity, would say, oh, I use Apple AI. Because pretty soon people are going to have self-expressive benefit. They're going to say, I use Anthropic or I use... Right. They have to put it in their products. They, it has to be part of their products. It, absolutely. And it's not. It's it's absolutely not. It's in Google products right now. It's everywhere. So it has to start to talk to you. For me, it's not whether they get into this business. It's the extent to they vertically integrate. Yeah. Interesting. Great prediction. It's really so interesting. It's so funny. I literally just had discussion after discussion about, and Apple was my last question for everybody because they're just not anywhere here. Um, the, many people did point out they don't have the compute and technical capabilities that the uh, that the other two have. That was a really great prediction, that last one, especially, Scott. We want to hear from you. Send us your questions about business tech or whatever's on your mind. Go to nymag.com slash pivot to submit a question for the show or call 855-51-PIVOT. Okay, Scott, that's the show. What a good show that was, even though it started off rockily. But, you know, I'm your man, Scott. I'm the man. Uh, in so many ways, Kara. <laughs> well, in so many ways. We'll be back on Tuesday with more Pivot. We just have a few before the holidays, but so much to talk about. This has been such a newsy year. Scott, read us out. Today's show was produced by Lara Naiman, Zoe Marcus, and Taylor Griffin. Ernie Undertot engineered this episode. Thanks also to Drew Burrows, Neil Severio, and Gadda McBain. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening to Pivot from New York Magazine and Box Media. We'll be back next week for another breakdown of all things tech and business. Kara, have a great rest of the week and weekend. Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Whether you're exploring space, making pizza, or producing a podcast like this one here, chances are your team is marching into the AI-generated horizon. Atlassian Intelligence is unleashing a new era of teamwork. You can use Atlassian's AI-powered products for everything from brainstorming ideas to finding information to summarizing huge documents, all by using normal, everyday language. Atlassian AI-powered software like Jira and Confluence help teams accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how you can transform teamwork with the power of AI at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.